First Peter chapter 3 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and if you just wave to them, they'll get, put a Bible into your hands so that you can hear the Word of God this morning, but then also read along, which is the best way. Wonderful to have a Bible in your hands and as a part of a worship service, so get their attention. Sunday mornings, we're studying First uh, Peter, and we find ourselves in First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Peter writes, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without the word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for how comprehensive it is. We thank you for how well you know us and that you give us instruction, Lord, in all areas of our life because you know that we need instruction. And we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken related to the marriage relationship in your word so we don't have to guess or wonder or make a million mistakes or a disaster of our lives or other people's lives. You know best. You have made us. You know what is wise. And so, Lord, we thank you for what we're going to be studying this morning. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be very active, not only in the room, but in our individual hearts, giving life and instruction and direction to each one of us as we study your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Peter wrote this letter to Christians who were uh, being blamed by the Roman Caesar at the time, a man by the name of Caesar Nero, for having burnt down a large section of the city of Rome, though Caesar Nero himself was responsible uh, for the setting of the fires. And when Nero blamed Christians, it unleashed a very, very powerful persecution against Christians all over the Roman Empire, and it ended up resulting in a, a, a very fierce kind of physical persecution of Christians at the time, slander, accusations being made against them as enemies of Rome, enemies of the Roman Empire. And all of it, of course, was patently false, but many people uh, believed it. And the result of all of these false accusations was that it sullied the reputation of Christians in the world at that time. It caused people to look at Christians with great suspicion. And not only did it sully uh, the reputation of Christians at the time, but it also did great damage to the reputation of Christ in the world as well. After all, what does he do? Save people and turn them into arsonists? And so his reputation is always very much bound in, up in our reputation. And so this is what was going on. And because of it, the Apostle Peter, and, uh, and uh, by this Holy Spirit, instructed them and instructs us regarding how to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as he says in chapter 2, verse 5. In other words, men and women who believe these lies about Christians but uh, without uh, being smart enough to check out the facts to determine whether it was really true. And so Peter had addressed how to silence the ignorance of foolish men in the realms 
of how we are to be as citizens as Christians, also how we're to conduct ourselves in the workplace. And now he turns to how we can do so through how we conduct ourselves in our marriages. And so this morning we want to learn from this passage that godly, Christ-reflecting, Christ-honoring marriages are another way to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And we'll look specifically this morning at the role of the Christian wife in all of this. You notice in verse 1, he instructs Christian wives to be submissive to your own husbands. And the word submissive in the original language, which is Greek in the New Testament, it's a single word, submissive, in the English, but it's in two specific words in the Greek language. And, and one word has the meaning of under and the other meaning to place. So literally it means to place under. And here the apostle Peter tells Christian wives that they are to place themselves under their husbands. In, in, this, in doing this, there is the recognition of some kind of an authority structure that the Christian wife is to recognize and she is to honor. Within the Christian home and within the Christian marriage, there is an authority structure. Uh, Paul writes of it in, in one of his letters to the church at Corinth, and he put it this way, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So that's the authority structure. In any Christian home, the ultimate and highest place of authority is held by God the Father. And then in terms of authority, immediately under him is Jesus. Uh, the book of uh, Philippians, Paul wrote, it, it, speaking of Jesus and his authority in that position, he said, "'Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus.'" who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, this is submission, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Jesus, when he came into this world, he did not lay aside his deity. He did not lay aside his equality with God the Father. But he did voluntarily take a position of submission to him related to authority. Now, this whole idea, even the word, but the whole concept behind the word, the whole reality behind the word, the word has been so maligned in the culture, this word called submission, that it's very, very important to realize that it is not a dirty word, it's not to be despised, but it is to be like Christ. You cannot be like Christ without being submissive. It, it cannot happen because he submitted himself to the will of the Father to accomplish our salvation. And so you cannot be like Christ and reject the blessings and the virtue of submission when it's asked for and, and required by God. The only reason you and I as Christians this morning sit in this room saved is because of that word submission, that Jesus submitted himself to the authority of the Father, came into this world, paid the price for our sins to be forgiven. The only reason we're saved and we're forgiven have the absolute unshakable confidence that our eternity after this life is in heaven. It's all tied to submission. It's all tied to the word uh, submission. And then in this authority structure within the home, there is the father, there is Jesus, and then there is the husband, and then there is the wife. And it's interesting to note, most people just look and they say, well, the wife is, is under submission. 
Every human being in a Christian home is under submission. Nobody is free of being under submission. Now, the thing about God is that God is a God of order. There's order in the Godhead. There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. There's order in creation. You and I are moving from one season to another season, right here at this time of the year, moving from summer to fall. We see order in creation around us all day, every day. There's order in the church, and there is order in the family. And you cannot maintain order without also having clearly defined authority. Who is it that makes that decision? Who has the authority to make that decision? Who has the authority to make the decision when two people hold polar opposite views on what ought to be done in that situation and what the decision ought to be? Without an established authority structure, you would stop all progress in life. It would result in a comparative anarchy. Everywhere you look in a healthy, advancing, productive society, we accept that someone has to have ultimate authority, and with that authority, accountability and responsibility. But someone has to have ultimate authority, otherwise comparatively little would get done. And so we view submission and we view authority as something that's a good thing and a necessary thing everywhere we look in life. I think about the captain of a commercial uh, plane. You have the captain who is, has the ultimate authority in that cockpit, and he or she has a co-pilot and others that are involved that, with, with helping him or her. But that captain has the ultimate authority in that cockpit. And, and while that captain is going to ask for good information from everyone that is there to assist them and wouldn't be a very wise person if they didn't do that, but if push, when push comes to shove and a decision needs to be made, he has the authority or she has the authority to make that decision. And if you had two pilots in the cockpit with equal authority and they had a disagreement over something and were going to fight it out and nobody could determine who had ultimate authority, you don't want to be on that plane. That's not a safe plane to be on. You take the same thing into any operating room in the whole wide world. You've got a head surgeon in that, that room. And so when they open that person up, that person, that man or that woman, has ultimate authority in that room. He or she is going to use all of the information, all of the expertise, listen to all of the advice and the counsel of all of the other medical experts that are in the room as is needed. But when they get the place where they begin now and the open heart surgery, and here is the place where they, they were planning on a four-way bypass, looks like it's going to have to be a six-way bypass. Can the patient stay under long enough for that to happen? Is the heart strong enough? Or they're going in to remove some, something that has cancer in it. How far do they move into the surrounding tissue before they hit nerves and all of these kind of things? One person ultimately has to have the authority to make that decision. And if it were a group effort or it were a committee or even a committee of two in that room, you wouldn't want to be on that table because you can only keep people under for so long before that begins to become a problem. We like to have that kind of authority. The same thing is true on a construction site. You've got a site superintendent who has the authority to do what's necessary to get that building uh, built. If you had four or five people with equal authority, the building might never get built, and if it did get built, it wouldn't look anything like the plans maybe, and it might not be a safe building to go into. All of us, every single one of us in this room, we submit to authority every day, 
And yet so often we think, of a th- we think of submission to authority only in the realm of this is something that Christian wives do in a Christian marriage. Everyone submits. Everyone submits to authority. Every time I stop for a red light, I am submitting to authority. When I stop at a stop sign, I'm submitting to authority. Every time I obey a, a traffic law or any law, I am submitting to authority. Otherwise, if there wasn't the authority to establish laws and then enforce uh, those laws for the good of others, then the whole world would just sink into anarchy. Someone has to have the authority, and then that someone needs to be supported in that authority. And that happens everywhere in life. We could go on to speak of the classroom. We could go on to speak of the courtroom. We could go on to speak of businesses and anywhere you want to go in life. We take the position of submission in life every day and we don't think anything of it. And so how is it that as a society we can accept it Indeed, view it as a good thing, a necessary thing in all other areas of life, but not when it comes to marriage. I don't say that Christians view submission in that way, but the culture that we live in, the society that we live in, uh, does. You cannot have two ultimate heads in a marriage. Someone, either the husband or the wife, must be the head in terms of ultimate authority. And God, knowing how he has made both man and woman, has chosen for that authority, that responsibility to lie with man. He has chosen men for that place. And here's how that works kind of on a practical uh, level. It doesn't mean that the husband is Every day he comes in and he hits his chest, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. You know, so God's a little more nuanced than that and a little brighter than that, I say with great hyperbole. Here you have a situation, for instance, where a decision needs to be made in a Christian marriage, affecting the family, affecting the marriage. It's a major decision. The husband looks at it and he says, we need to go in this direction on this, on this decision. She looks at it and she feels equally strongly that they, should do the exact, that they should do the exact opposite of what the husband is, is, is wanting to do. And, and so, when there's this difference of opinion, he has the authority and he has the responsibility to make that call and then she is to support uh, him in the authority that God has given to him. I've been married f- uh, to my wife, Karen, for 35 years. And so, kind of returning to the me, Tarzan, you, Jane kind of thing, the overwhelming number of decisions that have been made in 35 years of marriage, are they're mutually agreed upon. They're very easy decisions. We agree on them. The decisions where one of us sees it a little bit differently uh, than the other. Then it becomes a thing where you talk things through, you discuss, you're seeing it this way, why do you see it this way? And then, and then I see it this way and here's why. And then you leave off. Everything doesn't get solved in one conversation. Sometimes major issues don't get solved in ten conversations. You leave off it and you go to prayer and, and consideration of what it is that's being proposed and back and forth and pretty soon you have feel like you have the mind of the Lord or the peace of the Lord related to the direction to go in. In 35 years, this is just me and Karen, everybody's uh, marriage can be completely uh, different. There have only been a handful of times where we have gone beyond those kind of processes and she has felt strongly in one direction, I have felt strongly in another direction and then said to her, as best as I can hear the Lord, this is what we need to do. And so here's where we move forward in that direction. 
and then her responsibility is to submit to me in that and then pray like crazy, you know. Uh, uh, prayer is always there for the wife. And, uh, and so that's how it works. Now, you may, have, you may be in a marriage where you have these kind of differences of opinions on a, on a, on a daily basis. That, some of that's just personality, the two people making up, you know, the marriage and all. But that's how, when push comes to shove, ultimately someone has to have the authority to make that decision. And God gives that authority to the man. Now, this command to submit does not require women to be subordinate to men in general in society. And that's important to mention. Uh, But uh, they are to be subordinate to their husbands as a function of order within the home. Now, it's important to realize what this is not saying. It is not saying that the husband is superior to the wife. He's not. He has this authority, but he's not superior to the wife. Both the husband and the wife are created and have been created in the image of God. That's the way that it is. It's fascinating to realize that the male sex alone cannot fully represent God in this world and the full image of God. It takes both sexes, both Adam and Eve, to portray the full image of God. And the woman can't do it alone. The man can't do it alone. It takes both sexes to do that. Both are of equal value, of equal importance in the eyes of God. It isn't saying that the husband is of greater importance to God. It isn't saying that the husband is of greater value than the wife. The woman is no more inferior uh, to the man in importance or value than Jesus is to the Father. It isn't saying that the wife, the husband is a better person than the wife. You take another place where you're talking about submission and all of that, take it into the military. You can have a captain in the army who isn't one-tenth the person in terms of personal character of a private that is underneath him in that authority structure, but he still possesses the authority. So authority doesn't communicate that a person is a better person simply because they have greater authority. Submission doesn't mean that the wife's perspective isn't to be communicated and to taken into account in decision-making. What man in his right mind, what husband in his right mind would not only require the input Uh, from his wife on any and all decision-making, but then esteem that opinion and that perspective highest of all above everything else in, in the world because this person is a part of the situation that the decisions are being made related to. I don't think you just... You excuse me, you just got to be a blockhead if, if you don't give, give very serious consideration and decision-making to the perspective of the wife. It's not saying that the woman is not better than the man or the wife isn't better than the husband in certain things or maybe in all things. She just may be better than the husband in every way you want to look at. That can happen. The reason I mention it is, I'm getting a name. Hold on a second here. Just, <laughs> just kidding. The reason I mention it is that sometimes submission is taught in the body of Christ that because you're the head, you have to do everything. But this guy, this guy may not be able to add four plus four. And now you're telling him he's got to run all the books in the house and and balance the checking and do the budget and the whole thing. And here she is. She's got her PhD in accounting, and she's sitting over on the couch, and he's just making a mess 
of the whole finances of the family. But no, he can't turn it over because that would be usurping the top spot in terms of authority. That, of course, is nonsense. In any marriage, you look and you say, who is gifted and who is better at this or who is better at that? And then they get put into that position. But even if she takes over that role within the family, it is his decision and she does it under his ultimate authority. Now, it, what it is saying here is that the husband is called by God to lead. And he is to be honored and he is to be supported and he is to be helped in that role and in that responsibility. Now, I see two great, great reasons for all of this, the importance of that leading and then the importance of, of the submission. And the first and the greatest reason that is that in a Christian marriage, we are representing as Christians something so much greater than just ourselves and our spouse. The Bible declares that our Christian marriage is a ongoing, living communication to the world of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, he brings all of this out, the fact that it's a great mystery. And the husband is to love his wife in the same way that Christ loves the church. And the wife is to submit to the husband in the same way that the church submits to the loving leadership of, uh, of Jesus. And that's how it works. And that's what is being communicated through our marriage. Whenever I uh, officiate at a wedding, I always make sure that people are clear on this. Not the people that are getting married. That's, always, that's already taken place in counseling. But for everybody that's here, this isn't just something, some, uh, you know, um, mindless ceremony that we're going through so we can go out there and eat a great meal on somebody else's dime. This, these two people as Christians are committing before you, before God and the rest of the world that the most important thing to her is to represent the relationship of the church in the relationship between the church and Christ. And he's committing to represent the Lord in that relationship in this marriage. So that when you see them in the home, you see them at the mall, you see them on the street, you can look at them and you can see him and his treatment of her, that that's exactly how Christ treats the church and you see her and her response to him, that that's how the church responds to Christ. That's, that is the meaning, the value, the, the heft that is a part of Christian marriage that we have the privilege of representing. And one of the things that happens, the older you get as a Christian, the more you want to use every single area of your life to communicate the existence of God, the wisdom of God, the beauty of God. And so you look and you say, I want, to, I want my life to speak of Christ and to speak of God in this area, this area, this area, this area. But also in our lives as Christians where a person comes to the place and says, listen, I want this whole wide world to come to know Christ, the relationship that a person can have with Christ, the beauty of the relationship that is found there the amazing life that unfolds under his wisdom by watching this marriage of mine. And you come to covet every opportunity to communicate the love and the wisdom and the power and the glory of God through our lives. And marriage is one of those ways that that happens. And to violate that, this authority structure is to completely destroy the great spiritual communication of uh, the Christian marriage. And it is a, assumed in a Christian marriage that this is important uh, and more important, this witness of Christ, than all of the egos involved. Sometimes people look at this and they say that uh, the woman, she does all of the giving in a Christian marriage. Please, we'll get to the men uh, another time. 
Everybody dies in that relationship. Everybody dies in a marriage. Self, <laughs> you, you want self to die, you get married. And, and then no way out. I mean, commit for life. So it doesn't matter whether it's the husband or it doesn't matter whether it's the wife. Everybody is going to pay a price, wonderfully so, for being faithful to God in that, that relationship. But everyone ends up dying, and it's the death of self and so that resurrection life can unfold. So it's not like a bad thing that happens. The second thing uh, here in terms of reasons for all of this is that it also, this submission of the wife toward the husband also communicates that the husband is in need of his wife's honor and her support in order to fulfill his role before God. In his place of leadership, he carries an enormous responsibility. And I think it's important for Christian wives to look at their husbands and, and to realize you know, one day, and certainly important for us to recognize it as husbands, to realize one day that man is going to give an account for his role in this marriage in a way that even I am not going to have to give an account as it relates to the success of this marriage. It is Sometimes we look at it and we say, it's all privilege, it's all one-sided, it's all loaded one way. It is a, an enormous responsibility comes with that authority that's been given. And he is in need of support to be successful in that position. Just, and God absolutely knows it. The difference between a man and a woman is more than physical. Uh, he, we are different in how we think. We are different in what is most important to us. God has made man, and he knows what is important to him. And one of the things that is most important to a man is the support of his wife and the respect of his wife. So another time we'll get to the fact that husbands are to love their wives. So you sit here this morning, perhaps as a Christian wife, and you say, that'd be the top thing my in my relationship with my husband is that he would love me. And you think about how you value that above all else. Now take that and carry it over and put yourself in the man's place. And as much as you value love, he values respect. He values being respected by his wife in the call of God to take the position to lead in that family. And if you deny him that respect for that, that authority that he has and that position that he has, there isn't any single thing that you can do that more will, will more quickly damage that marriage and, and cause it to unravel. Men value the respect and the support of their wives to where they can look at their wife and say, no matter what happens to me in this whole wide world, where sometimes you get married and you don't have two quarters to rub together, and then sometimes you can end your life and you don't have two quarters to rub together. Life is a funny thing, even apart from our own decision-making. But the husband likes to know, as he heads out the door, whatever he's doing, heading out to begin the day and all, I know I can lose everything else in this world. But I know one thing about that woman that is married to me, that whatever comes and goes in and out of my life, that at the end of all of this, she will still be standing by me. That is a man who considers himself to be fabulously wealthy, independent of any material things in the world. That's what we value. So you talk about, you know, sometimes they do these studies, they always come out of Sweden. They, they spend you know, zillions and millions of whatever their currency is and the whole thing, and they do another study on the differences between boys and girls. 
And then voila, we pick up the newspaper and here it is. Stockholm is discovered. There's differences between boys and girls beyond the obvious physical differences. The boys tend to gravitate toward guns. Well, not in Sweden. <laughs> Got to go to Texas to get, you know, these little cap guns and stuff. They like to roughhouse. They like to sock each other. They like to put each other in headlocks. They like to wrestle until their ears are red and burning. And then in general, the girls over here, they like the dolls and they like this and the whole thing. And, and there, is, there is that difference. Difference between the two. And it carries all the way up into adult life and important to understand what's important one to the other. We notice here, too, that submission is powerful stuff. Let me just say one other thing. A husband is not looking for another mom. He already had one of those. And so he, he's not looking for another mom in his life. He's looking for a wife, and this is what a wife looks like in terms of how that, the dynamic of that relationship. You want to have trouble in the marriage bed, become his mom and see how all that works out for you. So men are not really interested in another mom. They're interested in a wife, and they're interested in this kind of support and the role that they've been called to. Now, we notice that submission is powerful stuff, and again, it isn't as one-sided uh, as it seems. And, and this submission has a powerful effect upon a man. Being submissive doesn't mean that you're powerless to influence uh, or affect change in the marriage relationship as a wife. You have very powerful uh, means to affect change. Wives, notice in verses 1 and 2 that God gives you what is very, very priceless insight and how best to influence a man. Now, that's, that's valuable insight, how best to influence a man. So God knows how he has made man, and as we said, the differences between men and women, they are not just physical, and God is telling wives that you will influence a man more through submission and respect than through any other means. It takes faith, for sure, to use those means, to use uh, the submission and the respect, but it is much more powerful than nagging or arguing all the time or fighting all of the time. And I'm not saying that all wives do that. Now, notice that this respect for the husband's authority is to be given by the Christian wife even if her husband is not a Christian and that it works just as powerfully in their lives as when one has a Christian uh, husband. Now, Peter here uh, is... Uh, and, he, and Peter speaks about the fact that it can even result in the salvation of the unsaved uh, uh, husband. Now, Peter's dealing with the cases here. No Christian is to marry a non-Christian. That's forbidden in the Bible. But here you had a situation, so he's not condoning that. What, what he's talking about is, here you've got two people. They both, they're both married. Neither of them are, are Christians. And then here the wife gets saved, but the husband doesn't get saved. And any Christian wife, the most important thing at that point, once she becomes a Christian, the most important thing in her life is now that her husband would come to know the Lord as, as well. And, and so that's the desire that she has. And so how, how can you be a powerful impact or effect related to that? And Peter says, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And that chaste conduct, it refers to living a holy or a pure or a godly life. And this communicates an important limitation upon submission as well. In other words, a Christian wife is not to submit to her husband, Christian or otherwise, if she's told to do something by the husband that is contrary to 
the Word of God. In that case, she must disobey her husband and then submit to the Lord. And so there, there is, but what, what is a powerful influence upon a husband is chaste conduct, that godly life, and then he speaks of fear, which speaks of the reverence for the Lord, reverence for God's uh, commandments. And Peter tells us that wives don't need to be uh, constantly preaching necessarily at, at their husbands in order to get them saved. Uh, honey, I'm just going to, we're going to go to sleep tonight. Just a little background. I've got an MP3 of eight hours of Pastor Chuck Smith's Bible teaching I'd like to put on in the background so that when you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, these things that we can sometimes do. So we don't have to, you don't have to be constantly preaching at, at the husband's communication is a great thing. That's wonderful. But sometimes a Christian wife is in a marriage where she has shared the gospel with her husband, and the husband knows that she's a Christian. He isn't interested in it at the moment. And he can honestly say, listen, I, I understand what you're living. I understand you want me saved. I understand how to get saved. But I don't want you to share with me not one more time about this subject. It's, it's taboo. It's off the table. You cannot do that. And so often a Christian wife thinks, oh, man, because we think, not just wives, but everybody, we think the most powerful means of communication is verbal. So now we're dead. How are we going to change this guy? How are we going to impact him? And Peter reminds you that God can win them without words. You say, really, how? Through a holy, godly life that is being lived out of a deep, deep respect for God and for his word. And God knows men very, very well, and he knows that you are much more likely to change a man in this way than in any other. And maybe you can't say anything in the situation, but your life will speak and continue to speak, and that is a voice that cannot, can never be silenced, and God will make sure of it. It doesn't guarantee that the husband will ever become saved. It says may in the passage. He may, he may not. That's between him and between uh, God. But if they don't come to know the Lord, then you can have the confidence that you gave God the most powerful thing that of all to use in reaching them, and that was a godly life lived out before them with great respect toward the Lord. Now notice in verses 3 and 4, Peter then gives Christian women uh, a lesson or a reminder concerning how God measures beauty in a wife, especially in a wife that wants to influence her husband spiritually. And I think it's an important reminder because Rome at the time of the reading of this letter was very much like our American culture. They were just head over heels into uh, material things, into fashion, into hairstyles, into clothes, into jewelry. This is what it was about. And we look at our culture, you see how much of the culture is materialistic, but how much of the indoctrination of young children and young girls that this is the only beauty that matters and how much of it is nourished and, how, and, and the focus and all of it all the way into adult life and all the way through your life. You can't turn anywhere in, in, in the culture without something about hairstyles and clothing and the newest this and that and the jewelry and now you've got to do this to one-up the next person and all that kind of thing. And so they were as obsessed about this stuff as we are today. Now, when Peter moves to this whole idea of beauty here, he's not changing subject from a wife desiring to be a spiritual influence upon her husband and to be a blessing and a help to her husband, and, and, and then now he's going to talk about women's fashion. That's not what's going on here. He's continuing in this vein by reminding her that her outward appearance will not influence him as much as her inner life and her inner character. The word adornment in verse 3 is the Greek word cosmos. We get our English word cosmetic, 
uh, from that word. It's interesting to realize that uh, the Greek word that is the opposite of cosmos is the word that we get our English uh, word chaos from. Uh, and the word chaos means a rude, unformed mass. So evidently, cosmetics were invented for the purpose of addressing and controlling some form of chaos in the Greek, some rude, unformed uh, mass. It is the before picture in all of the advertise, uh, advertisements. Now, when Peter addresses the arranging of hair and the wearing of gold and the putting on of fine apparel, he is not prohibiting Christian wives from looking attractive. That's not what he's uh, prohibiting here uh, at all. Nothing wrong with having a nice hairstyle, one that you're comfortable with, wearing jewelry, having nice clothes. And you get into some sections of the body of Christ where they look at what the, the teaching of the Bible and they just come to the conclusion every single Christian wife has got to look like Ma Kettle or she's unspiritual. And it really becomes a badge of spirituality. So elsewhere in the New Testament where it talks about not the braiding of hair, and so in, in those circles, you can't even braid your hair. But historically, when you look at where Rome was and what's being addressed there, when these women, the whole one-upmanship that was going on in the culture, it wasn't just like braiding hair pretty and say, wow. I mean, how many ways can you braid hair? What, five ways? I don't know how many ways. But I mean, after a while, how impressive is braided hair? Braided hair. That's not what's going on. They would braid the hair and interlock, you know, strings of gold in it and jewelry and all. So there, there would be that kind of thing. When I talk about wearing jewelry, they'd be decked out from head to toe almost with jewelry. And the idea is then with some fabulous, expensive piece of clothing, walk into a room, and the idea wasn't, I just got up and this is all that was clean in my closet and I decided to wear. She's walking into that room to put down every other woman in the room. So it's talking about this just kind of off the graph, consumed with personal appearance. And where does all of that excess come from? That beauty, true beauty, is only external. And that what a person is on the inside is valueless in the culture. That may be true of the culture, but it is not true of God. So that's why he talks about all of this. But it doesn't mean you have to look rumpled and frumpled and, and unattractive. If you want to, you absolutely have the freedom to do that. But it's not saying that Christian wives can't uh, look as attractive as, as they uh, would like uh, to, to look. The point that he's making is that these things are not to be your adornment. In other words, your outward appearance isn't to be the main focus of your life, and you're not to be fooled into thinking that you're beautiful solely based upon your outward appearance, that that's all you need to take care of in order to be beautiful. There's a lot more to it. A woman can be fabulously adorned on the outside and, being wear, and wear, be wearing rags on the inside. And the idea is this. And the wife, uh, Christian wife, where we present ourselves physically and in a, the way that you consider appropriate between you and the Lord. But the idea is when I walk into a room and I'm with people and then I leave that room, I don't want them talking about my hair and I don't want them talking about my jewelry and I don't want them talking about my clothing. I want to leave that room with them saying, that's one of the nicest people I've ever met. If everyone in the world was like that, the world would be a lot better place. That becomes the goal in, in the life rather than the outward appearance. The old saying, beauty is only skin deep. In other words, that it's only, that it's superficial is very, very uh, true, that kind of beauty anyway. I remember reading an illustration uh, of this years ago in which a friend was at a barbecue at his friend's house, two men, and... Uh, and the one guy that was hosting the barbecue had a, you know, a, 
wife that was, you know, just a knockout and beautiful. And the friend replied, uh, wow, you, this, you know, you did all right. You got a beautiful wife. And then the other, one other friend said to his friend, he said, yeah, but you don't have to live with her. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. Beauty only, outward beauty only takes you so far. And it only takes you to a certain age. Gravity wins. It always wins. The fact of the matter is, you may not be aware of this, I'm here to depress you today, but <laughs> it, it's something like age 24 that your body is producing more cells than it's destroying. And then at that point, you start to age. And it, it's slow, you're still looking good for a while, but then the longer you go, the more that disproportion, so the more decay there is on it. So that's why the grandkids come into the house and they see a picture of, you know, uh, grandma and grandpa up on the mantle when they were 20 years old and they want to know who they are. <laughs> You've got to tell them, that's me and grandpa. Oh, come on, that's crazy. You once looked like that? And you just laugh at them because, you know, it's going to happen to them. So you just have pity on them. They'll, <laughs> they'll be answering the same questions to their, their grandkids. But I think that external beauty without a corresponding inner beauty, that just has to be its own curse because it's just going to lead to a lifetime of superficial relationships and a very, very superficial life. And trust me, ladies, men understand that. They do ultimately uh, look for inward beauty, and they do ultimately come to value it. So instead of the greater attention being given to the hidden person of the heart, that is, the, uh, the, the, it, he's saying far greater attention to be given to the hidden person of the heart, that is, the inward beauty. He describes it as an incorruptible beauty. It doesn't fade with time, doesn't spoil with time, only gets more beautiful with time. That's one of the great things about a Christian marriage is you just keep on going and you, you start to uh, define, you're always going to define beauty in certain ways, but you define uh, beauty more and more inside. And then what holds you together is this shared experience, the shared history that you have. Other things become uh, important, and necessarily so. And so Peter tells us what this incorruptible beauty looks like. He says it's a gentle and a quiet spirit. And it literally means a humble, quiet undisturbed spirit. You say, all right, can you give me a picture of the person who is that so I can emulate them? I can. And the picture of them is found in all four Gospels. It's the picture of Jesus. You say, who can I model my life after that, that, that will ultimately produce this kind of inward beauty? Just follow him. Just walk with him. Just obey him. And all of it will occur as a byproduct. Do you realize that in the New Testament, Jesus gave only one uh, description of himself in all of the Gospels? And when he chose to describe himself, he did not describe himself physically. He described himself in, uh, in terms of what he was on the inside. And see if you recognize it. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here it is, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He describes his inner beauty is the very thing that he is calling the Christian wife to, and that he will produce within her. Peter tells us that all of this is very precious in the sight of God. That is, this is what God considers to be very, very attractive in a woman's life or in a Christian wife's life. And so a Christian woman's outward appearance uh, will uh, not influence her husband as much as an inner life of holiness and submission. The fact of the matter is, is not everybody can be uh, A-list beautiful on the outside in the world. That's just a gene pool thing. That's just, that's just 
who you get born out of. But everyone can be beautiful on the inside, like Jesus is describing here. And wonderfully, it's all free. So in this kind of superficial, external, beauty-is-God culture that we live in, this passage really ought to make, and, and I'm, I'm not, I don't want to take a cheap shot at you. This is a subject where you can take and really rake people over the coals on it. But it really does, because of the culture that we live in, it's good for Christian wives and women in general just to stop and step back and go in the light of this teaching, of this passage. What proportion of time, effort, resources, mental effort goes into my outward appearance on a daily basis as opposed to the development of this inner character through the scriptures and prayer and fellowship with God. And that is a good thing to have search us so that we don't end up being run over by the culture. Now finally in verses 5 and 6, notice that if a Christian wife gives God her submission and, and her godly character to work within her marriage, God promises to honor that. And he views it, you notice in verse 5, as an expression of faith in him. And he honors your faith. You say, God, I'll give you what you're asking for in this marriage. God says, I see faith. And I will honor that faith in your life. And he will be faithful to do it. And in submitting to your husband, you're giving God your obedience to work with in your marriage and in your husband's life. And God will honor that, that faith that he recognizes that that submission is communicating. Someone says, how can submission be powerful? It's powerful because God promises to honor it, and he will. He may never change that husband of yours. He may never get saved. But it does not mean that God did not make what you did for him as unto the Lord powerful in that marriage and in that circumstance. And it does not mean that a great reward is awaiting you in heaven on the basis of results rather than your simple obedience to the Lord. It's powerful because God promises to honor it and he will. And Peter, there in verse 6, he chose Sarah as a specific example of a woman who was submissive to her husband, Abraham. And by the way, Abraham was a very good man, but he was not a perfect man. He did a couple things that would put you in the doghouse for years. Some of you might know. I'm not going to get into it. But she called him Lord. So that's what I, the man that Karen calls me at home. <laughs> Lord Damien, is there anything else that I can do for you? That's not what it's saying. It means that she recognized Abraham as the leader and the head of their household, and uh, she uh, gave him that respect and, and gave him that, that submission. And to follow Sarah's Example as a wife entrusting God, Peter says, is to become a daughter of Sarah, so to speak, a spiritual descendant of her and her example. And the marks of Sarah was she did good in, in obeying God's commandments, and then she trusted God rather than being terrified at what might happen. Again, it really does take faith to do this, but God will watch over you, and he will honor your obedience. Well, I've run out of time, and I can't really speak to the husbands, but they're probably doing everything they're supposed to be doing anyway. <laughs> so we'll move on to the next passage. So we'll look at the husbands next time. Ladies, this is what God wants people to see when they watch a Christian woman in a marriage relationship. And it is what blesses him and it is what he promises to bless in your life. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Who could know us like this, Father, but the Creator? 
Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your instruction. We see the whole nation and Western world that we live in running away from your instruction. And we see the terrible, terrible price that is being paid in human lives. And it breaks our hearts. Thank you that we don't have to believe the latest popular lie of this world on any subject or on the subject of being a Christian wife or a wife in general, but to be able to build on a foundation that will never disappoint. And Lord, we pray for one another in this room this morning, and we ask as wives in these relationships, take this stand and give you their obedience, that you honor it and that you bless it, Lord, and bless their lives for their willingness to take a picture way bigger than their own life into perspective and how they live their life out in this world. Bless them and keep them, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.